Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So this week's exchange is with Lauren Granick and Gregory Alexander from a club called Ronda, which is currently LA's most successful underground dance event. Ronda is known for its policy of house, disco and polysexual hard partying. And it's one of the few LA club nights encouraging its crowd to get dressed up and get loose. Ron has been at the forefront of the LA scene's upswing in recent years. And we'll hear how the guys have remained dedicated to reconnecting dance music with its diverse roots while creating a space for self-exploration. As always, you can find the full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The RA Exchange with a club called Ronda is up next. Today we're here with the founders of a club called Rhonda. If you guys don't mind, could you introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Gregory Alexander. I am Lauren, aka God Dollars. For our international audience, a club called Rhonda has been an integral part of LA underground dance music, often bringing legacy house and disco names along with sort of emerging talent. They began in 2008, and we're going to get to find out a little bit about where they're coming from. But first of all, Gregory, can you tell me how you met Lauren? We met because of when we were, I think, just out of high school. We met because of my first boyfriend, actually, who was his best friend at the time. And they both worked around each other in 
uh, like in a vintage store and then like a clothing store that were right down the street from each other and they hung out a lot. And I was dating this guy. It was like my first real boyfriend, I guess. I think I was like 18. So we just sort of were hanging out with each other through him and then he moved away and we started hanging out with each other pretty much exclusively. And yeah, then, he kind of had like a cool flop house that everyone would go to and like smoke weed and like chill on the carpet and stuff. Like take acid yeah. and like <laughs> paint the walls. Yeah. Like all the walls were painted. <laughs> he introduced me to a lot of different things. <laughs> and I'm thankful for him for that. And I guess we should both be thankful that he introduced us to each other because I don't, I think it's been 11 years now since we've been knowing each other and been hanging out and been partying and have had multiple companies together or endeavors at least and i mean we still live together so that's pretty insane <laughs> and and run the business out of the, the house that we live in and you know we have a joint bank account <laughs> no what we do that's the a business. company account <laughs> let's not make it out like we're life partners or something. how uh, long have you guys been living together I mean, it's been this on is our a, second time. Yeah, this is our second time. We had, I guess, kind of part of the origins of Rondo was when we were, we had a place downtown. When downtown was still downtown. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. for like listeners who might not know about what's going on on Broadway in right. downtown LA, yeah. can you describe what downtown was like at the time? So downtown was a really gritty, like desolate place for a, a long time because everything had moved away from having a center of the city in Los Angeles in downtown and had moved more towards Hollywood, West Hollywood, Santa Monica, those type of places that were like prettier and more clean and pristine. At the time that we were living there, it didn't even have a supermarket. If we wanted to go grocery shopping, you know, we'd need to travel out of downtown into another part of the city to find like pretty much anything, especially after dark. <laughs> Nobody would really be around downtown after dark besides like anybody that was maybe um, smoking crack yeah free basing crack cocaine <laughs> i was gonna say it yeah. that stuff. <laughs> like skid row was very alive still then and we were not far off from that where our loft was of course now the building even that we our loft was in has completely changed and all of the buildings surrounding it have all turned into luxury lofts and stuff like that and there's multiple supermarkets down there there's like la live now which is like a major like entertainment center and it's definitely livable now and it's like a kind of a glamorous tinge to it now yeah i think that what what they did was there was so much empty commercial space there that they loosened the regulations for construction and for you know housing so that if there was vacant commercial properties there it was very easy to convert those into living spaces and over the course of, I think they started that in the early 90s. And over the course of 20, 30 years, it's kind of hit ahead right now where it's like, I guess their grand plan was working. It's definitely like livable. It's got like a lot of amenities. It's, it's got cool stuff like the Ace and all that kind of stuff moving in. I mean, an Urban Outfitters moved into a vintage yeah. theater. So that's yeah. like and it's one like, type of like notification uh, of like what is happening currently downtown. It's, it's gentrification that's happening everywhere. And it's interesting because what I've seen in a lot of other cities when this has happened is that it has kind of run head on into the scene, into like the music scene. Whereas here, the gentrification of the area has led to the 
kind of revitalization of this crazy cluster of old theaters that used to be around downtown stuff from the 20s that are these grand theaters that were with ornate ceilings and like you know these world-class movie houses so they're all being restored and opened up as venues so while rents are expensive we also have a kind of a nice situation where there is a glut of pretty amazing venues that are kind of coming onto the scene right now so right now Rhonda has grown to the point where you're able to inhabit some of those venues. Like, for instance, the Globe on Halloween. That's something that's coming up. But that's pretty far removed from what you started doing in your loft. And can you tell me a little bit about, like, what you were able to get away with since downtown was so desolate at the time? We used to throw parties out of our loft. We were lucky enough to have found a place that was, like, on the top floor of this artist building, basically. And we had a private door to the entire rooftop. So we had set up like a second living room outside with like, I don't know, kiddie pools and stuff like that that we would just constantly like party in all the time. And every once in a while throw like these pretty big ragers up there. And, you know, one of them actually led to us being kicked out of the building at some point. But I think around that time we also were doing like a jewelry, music, fashion sort of event multiple disciplinary situation and one of the first parties that we threw was I think my the bigger ones at least was my birthday at the time when I was turning 21 we rented out like a warehouse and had like Lauren DJ as well as a bunch of other friends of ours that DJ that have later gone on to create some amazing music as producers and have had their own DJ careers as well but like we would throw all of our friends to work there. We bought a bunch of beer, a bunch of bottles of champagne, and popped everything. And we were never allowed back to that warehouse again because we ruined pretty much everything. But like, we were able to get away with a lo- quite a lot then. There was hardly even cops to come around, yeah. to be honest. Like, So it wasn't necessarily that the cops were called when our building even got destroyed by like a random person coming into our party. Because we had hired, I think, like a, like a street... A street urchin. A woman of the night to do our door at this building. And we had just hired her to be like, people are going to come to this party. Let them in. Let them up the elevator. You needed a key to get into the elevator. And then we'll have signs from when they get up off on the top floor to where to go to our loft. There was always this like club next door that had like a, I think it was hip hop nights at the time. But the people that were getting rejected from the club wound up seeing that there was a party next door and they wound up coming in and creating trouble. And, and that, that was the Globe like Theater that. where we're... <laughs> that's, really? Funnily yeah. enough, that was, the, yeah, that was the Globe Theater where we're now returning to. So it's all come full circle. And actually, like later, when somebody else had bought the venue, they had turned it into Club 740, which was where we did our first rendezvous, which yeah. was one of the biggest things that we had done at the time because... Like I said, we started in these like lofts and like little warehouses and stuff like that. And then, you know, East Hollywood clubs that were like either for Guatemalan music or cumbia or restaurant spaces converted into clubs at night. So when we went back to 740, it was one of the bigger room experiences the first time that we were able to do that. And then now this is the first time that we'll be back at that space since we've grown so much. And it's cool to see that they've renovated it and that they're looking to do some really amazing music programming there, hopefully. And 
that they really want us back there. I mean, it's a different owner, of course, but the improvements seem to be up to par, I guess. So can you run over what you both do? Like, what roles do you take within the organization? Well, I mean, Gregory and I founded Rhonda, and we've been, you know, everything is kind of the buck stops here as far as everything's concerned. But I guess if we were to split up the duties, I take care of more of the music side of things where the booking is in my sphere of influence and the um, some of the like logistical and production on the AV side of things is the stuff that I try to focus on. And then we both kind of take care of like the brand and the the marketing and how Rhonda is viewed and Rhonda's voice. And then Greg can tell you what he does specifically. I guess I do more of the look of the space as well as like the hosting of the entire thing. So my realm of influence is more like about the people that come as well as the look of how it's realized within the space, sort of creative direction and how that meets up with like our visual representation everywhere, which is a very important thing. And we're collaborative in a lot of ways. So there's not necessarily like a specific hat that we each, you know, only wear. We're trading them back and forth a lot. But yeah, that's sort of how it goes. He's more of the sound, I'm more of the look, I guess. Got it. And you had mentioned some of the people that DJed the first warehouse party along with Lauren and God Dollars and Lauren's brother Paradise, Ryan, are the opening DJs at most of the Ronda parties, if not all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, more than opening at this point. I think you guys are always opening and now like also putting yourselves in the, the sweet spot in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's... I mean, yeah, we're the, we're the residents. We do... We know Rhonda as a creature so well. We know what she needs at certain times. So it's... um, That's an interesting subject in and of itself. But I think you're going somewhere with that. Let's talk about some of the party people as well as the people playing music that have grown with the party. And when was that first party? I mean... I would have been 21, and I'm now 30, so that was... Are you dating yourself, girl? I know. <laughs> Crazy. So that was nine years ago, and that would have been 2006, I guess? Yeah, so on that one, I mean, I guess like the early... That yep. was Yeppa. Yeppa, who was in that band, Junior Senior. He ended up going on to write a little song called Born This Way by some artist called Lady Gaga you might have heard of. <laughs> yeah, he wrote a few songs on the album, and he's Didn't like he a... a Grammy? Yeah, he's a <laughs> Grammy-winning artist who has walked through the doors of Rhonda. People like that are people who we all kind of came up with. I guess and like... like Philip from Poolside. Yeah, Philip from Poolside. As well um, as I'm a Robot, I guess he was in. Yeah. And he was came over from Junior Senior first, too, and... Who else did we have DJ that first time? I think, like, Jeremy Scott was one of the DJs, <laughs> randomly. And the fashion designer. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because Kazu was there, right? Yeah. And then my old roommate, like a Japanese exchange student, we had, like, posted up in the rafters, like, spilling confetti into, a, like, a fan that would go yeah, over people. Those, those are when we used to save money on production. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a family affair from the get-go, I guess. And, um... We started doing these warehouse parties that were all different names for a while, you know, for all different reasons. And there was something that we did called TikTok for a while, which was in other warehouse spaces um, that have later gone on to become legal, actually, like 613 Imperial. We did a few parties there yeah, before it was legal. <laughs> and then we we were having a lot of trouble with, like, you know, it's hard to do things that are illegal, especially in this town, because... 
people will crack down on it and you just have a lot up in the air. There's a lot of potential to lose a lot of money. Yeah. And for people to get hurt and all kinds or of... for you to just to get fined yeah. or taken to jail or whatever. So for a long time when LA was a kind of musical desert in terms of being a stopping place for artists to come through, I think that when there was no scene... LA had to kind of create its own scene and that was a scene that was created through a lot of undergrounds and people like Deep or Does Your Mama Know or old parties that were going on kind of right when we were starting and you know while that world has kind of gone for a lot of reasons that was kind of where we were starting from was from that the, yeah I mean the, we took a lot of influences from our predecessors yeah you know and we're always like tip our hat to all of them for sure for allowing us the space to start to begin and hopefully carry the torch in a way that makes them proud. But eventually we found ourselves into a semi-legal space, at least, which was at the time Guadalinda, which is where the birthplace of like Rhonda itself, I guess, started. That was the first time that we called a party Rhonda. And that just stemmed from us sort of getting together and throwing around names and, you know, like at the time we were, like I said, we were throwing a bunch of different warehouse parties. They were always in different spaces. So I had this sort of idea to throw a party under a different woman's name each time. Like it was a different woman that you were meeting on each night or something like that. And Rhonda was one of the names that we both liked. And he loved a fish called Wanda, which I hadn't even seen at that point, actually. <laughs> so it sort of like melted together to become a club called Rhonda. And we kicked it off pretty debaucherously yeah I um, I think that when we like being that we bounced around from a lot of different concepts and we were kind of like rudderless you know at that point we partying was never it was just something that we did it was not something that we're trying to do but on that first night when we had the concept we kind of created this really like mysterious branding and we gave cards out to people with her number on it and it just said call me and some people thought that we were constantly hitting on them yeah it said we gave cards that said call me and like the number and it was like her voicemail and and it just said the info of the party yeah and it was like it was kind of like this weird like we were trying out all these weird concepts and i think that at the on the outset of that like the sum of those parts was that the first night when we opened we didn't really know what to expect we're like oh, is anybody going to come to our party? Like, And like, it ended up being kind of pretty instantaneously special. I think that you had people, like, to this day will be like, yo, I was there the first night. And, you know, I'll be like, yeah, he can come in. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> it was a, a big combination of all the different crowds that we had since then found ourselves in. You know, like, me and Lauren have been partying for quite a time now together. In LA, but we'd always been jumping around from scene to scene a lot. So, you know, when we called upon all these scenes to get together and under a party that we were throwing and they all came together, it was a really magical space. And add to that, like, really cheap drinks and a really, like, any anything goes atmosphere. Yeah. Like, it was- <laughs> and it was pretty magic, like, toplessness, sexual acts, you know drinks everywhere mirrors everywhere because of the space but like lots of dark corners amazing music and very little air conditioning the ingredients for a great first party i guess (laughs) so who played the first party it was just us it was myself and then we had a few other residents at that time but it was just it took a long time for like we have 
my heroes then are the same as my heroes now, and we've tried to get them to come, but it took us a long time for us to get the attention of people who, like, the night that you were talking about, Metro Area, was probably the first night that we had, like, some real talent, quote-unquote, they're amazing, but some, you know, known names kind of come through. Yeah. Up until that point, it was basically us trying to... And local people and friends. Yeah, and, local people and, and people friends. that were doing cool yeah. shit underground, of course, but, like, n- nobody that was a name at the time, at least. And so um, it was just a, a family thing, like I said before. So it was everybody that had hung out together, that was working together. There was, like, different movements of stuff from, like, that blockhouse movement to the new disco movement to the whatever, you know? Like, so there's a lot of different phases that have happened within L.A., and we sort of have luckily been able to stay alive through a lot of them. <laughs> and one of the things that you referred to earlier was at the first party... You didn't know what was going to happen. You have the, those nerves that you have when you're starting anything. And yeah. a lot of different scenes coalesce that night because you guys were running in a lot of different scenes. So yeah. what sort of scenes were they? And going further than that, is Rhonda like a gay party? Is Rhonda a straight party? Is it a music nerds party? I, I what- think that like to answer that question, that's something that people like ask us all the time. Even when they're in the club, they're like, where am I and what's going on? The important thing to understand is where Greg and I come from. I think that... I hate to boil it down to this, but most basic difference from us is that Greg is gay and I'm straight. And at the time, Hi. and still, <laughs> and then st- still to this day, I think that there is kind of stratification of gay versus straight kind of, you know, nightlife. And that's something that me and Greg were always hanging out. And we saw that as totally ludicrous. Like, why can't we all just hang out together? I mean, I get it. You're trying and to And he laid. was coming to gay clubs with me and I was going to like straight yeah clubs and we were both going to like house and or other things that were hipper at the time you know that were not involved at all in dance music and that wasn't really necessarily our thing but the people that we knew went and we wanted to hang out with them and stuff so like i think that all of those different things all wound up meeting together on that day like you know my gay friends his gay friends my straight friends his straight friends and like our east side friends our west side friends the art school kids the gutter punks the like hipsters the like the people that actually had money that were coming you know? yeah so like, there was like the people just... with with money looking for an adventure <laughs> there was like the, the straight tranny chasers there was like there was strippers there was like what it was it was just a lot of different people and i think that that's part of the magic that's been like talked about and sort of has led us to success through word of mouth because we didn't have any money coming straight into it. You know, we didn't advertise. We didn't do any of that stuff. Like I said, we were passing out little cards that fit in your wallet, like from the get-go. So it wasn't even real-sized flyers. And then later down the line, yeah, of course, we started to realize, oh, shit, this was a real thing. At first, it was just a hobby because we wanted to party in the space that we wanted to be at. Yeah, I mean, it was just a place to create, like, our perfect vision. I mean, it was a hobby, but it's also, like the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that we thought should be put into it was never in question. Like, it was just this thing that we wanted to do. It was this vision that we had. Like, what is the party that we want to go to? And how are we going to create it? And it was never, like, never really took a lot of convincing. Like, hey, man, you should work harder on this party that we want to do. It's like, this is all there is. And, like, you know, we're going to, like, bust our ass to, like, execute this. And, you know, pretty much since then, it's been us trying to get as closer and closer to that perfection that we've we've always been looking for 
you know, and we're having to learn every single thing along the way. You know, our heart is pure, but it's also like there's slices of the business that we are still learning to this day. I mean, we had the influences and like the inspiration and stuff, but we didn't necessarily have the background to yeah. like be doing this. It was a lot of like trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Guadalinda. Like one of the things that you had mentioned was that was a semi-legal venue. And I've heard some things about this. Like, can you tell me what ended up happening with Guadalinda? Without uh, getting any un- unwanted attention onto us, it was it was like a, I think it was people that were in like Guatemalan like death squads, like in the weird wars that they had, that had come from, that had been tied to cartels and were like definitely ex-military people. Not like, that we were. No, not that we were, but they were just like bad people. Opened up nice. this. They were nice people, but they had. <laughs> They had showed me pictures of them like back home and it was like lots of automatic weapons and like it was just like no bueno. And it was like they were just guys who were for whatever reason came into control of this club and, you know, they were plugging away and doing their nights and nothing was like they were making OK money. And then kind of when we came in there and we were, we showed them like we walked in and we were like, hey, can we throw a party here? He's like, yeah, I guess. And then. Once he saw that people were actually coming, he was like, okay, like, let's go. And, you know. But the owner was actually the one that hired strippers one of the first Yeah, no, no. He was, he was like, this is what people want. He hired, like, these like, strippers, strippers. walking around. And we're like, and, like, you know, that'll be cool for 50% of the people here, but the other half will definitely not be into that. The, stripper, <laughs> the strippers made, like, no money, yeah. which they were very pissed at because, you know, it's a bunch of, like, crazy party kids being yeah. like, oh, that's cool, I guess. But, like, what? Like, I'm not going to tip them. They, I don't need a lap dance right now. Like, I'm trying to go have a cheap drink and make out with that person or something, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. So nobody was really, like, that interested in it. But um, he was a pretty crazy guy, and he let us get away with so much. Yeah, he, we and could he, do like, whatever we wanted there. And, and yeah. And he was he, a nice, he was super nice to us. He saw something, like, we were kids at that time. He was, like, he was nice enough to let us have free reign. It was. Didn't he take you to get a massage one night or something? No, no. He was like always like, "Let's go get a massage after like, during I'm like, the club." <laughs> I'm like, "Nah, dude, I'm good. I'm good." Like I go to but. my favorite <laughs> massage spot and always like, like, "Whoa, okay, whatever." Things were pretty <laughs> crazy from the get go, and like there was a lot of nights that we like left that club not realizing that it was sunrise. Yeah, you know? like so. where they would lock. It was like one of those where they would lock the doors. You know, whoever was in there. Which is pretty rare for Los Angeles. Yeah, you're not, I mean, you can't do, like, maybe your listeners might know, but one of the challenges in L.A. is the 2 a.m. liquor cutoff. So everyone has to stop selling liquor at that time, and most places have to close their doors at that time. So, you know, for us to go, like, around the world and see these places that are open for the whole weekend, that is a foreign concept to people from L.A., even though we get that, we get it in in different ways. It is. There least, are ways to to have that, of course, here, yeah. it, but you have to know where to find it. Yeah, and that's one of the things we were talking about earlier with Lauren and Gregory throwing warehouse parties, as well as some of the predecessors of that. Like, does your mama know and that sort of mm-hmm. thing? This this is why people go underground in L.A. Is yeah, for the most part, is this two a.m. liquor yeah. curfew. Yeah, but. What happened? Did you outgrow Guadalinda or what happened? There was a few times that the city actually shut it down when we were meant to have a party. And we had to last minute move the entire party to a different space, which we always usually reverted to 
our downtown roots and had some type of friend that had a loft or a space that we could fill or whatever. One time we were literally partying in somebody's like house. Yeah. Now we moved it to somebody's house and the the guys from Justice like jumped on the decks or something like that. And it was like, (laughs) (laughs) there's like pictures from this weird night where it's like a bunch of people in like face paint and whatever, like jumping around on somebody's couch and like Justice is there for some reason. It it was weird. But, and we just basically had set a sign on the front of the gate, which was closed legally by the city. And, like, we just put a sign over their sign saying that it was, like, closed and just with the new address and, like, the number to call in yeah. case you needed directions or whatever. So it was pretty... <laughs> yeah, it was pretty rogue at the time. I think eventually that venue was just not... It wasn't legal enough for us yeah. to, like, sustain anything there. And so it was going to be shut down, and so we just shut down. And we were not very interested in continuing it until we found the right space because it felt so much like a part of that space at the time. It felt like we could only do that in that space or that type of space at the time. We didn't want to go to just like a shiny Hollywood club that had like a lot of bouncers and whatever. We wanted it to feel like anything could still happen. Yeah, like that set the template for what we usually look for in going into a new venue, which is something that's special that we kind of are able to have a little bit of to ourselves or at least get the first kind of like debut or kind of bring it out of obscurity i think that's part of Rhonda's calling card is kind of having a little bit of identity within each venue that she goes in so that we recreated her multiple times to fit each of these spaces which is like it was on hiatus from when guadalina shut down until we found a place that could kind of like hold a candle to it which was el cid which was our second venue yeah. so we went to el cid saying like oh we're gonna throw this party it's gonna be fucking amazing like you'll never see this many people in your space and they'll be really crazy but they'll be really like uh, respectful and also like buy a ton of drinks you know and the guy didn't sort of believe us at all and so we're like all right cool let's like do a trial our first time and then we're gonna renegotiate our contract that after that first night and so he let us do it and it just we knocked it out of the park, I guess. And so after that, I think we had probably one of the best deals in the city. <laughs> we were able to negotiate. But it lived at El Cid for quite a while. And that was such a unique space as well because it was a... Um, it was a flamenco dinner yeah. theater. I think that Cecil B. DeMille owned it at some point. Well, it, it was, was created for that one movie, right? Like the, the Birth of a Nation. Yeah, it was originally conceived as a movie set, right? Yeah. Well, back in, like, the 20s or around that time, it was, like, Silver Lake was not even there yet. And they had built this space right after they had filmed Birth of a Nation, I guess, which was that classic, like, black and white film. Wasn't that, like, a KKK movie? Yeah. It's, like, a pretty controversial film in retrospect. Yeah, because it's on a hill, which is now Sunset, and then you basically enter off that hill and go down these insane steps all the way down to the bottom and there's sort of space that you can still see where the the theater screening might have was before and i guess they screened that movie there as well so right there in silver lake because most of the studios used to be in this area that area as well silver lake is where they had um you know max senate studios is there and it was at the time and the vista used to be a theater as well and paramount and stuff so at the time it was kind of this uh 
one of the hubs of you know movie production in the world kind of so i mean it has this history which is really crazy and then it later i guess somewhere down the line became a spanish restaurant and a flamenco club with a little mini stage and it has a like just as large of an outdoor space as it did an indoor space which is very la of course we were able to program amazing music inside on the stage but plug it out to the outside which was like good because you know it was insanely hot inside and um yeah that was kind of when we were able to hit our stride and when it became less of like a what the hell do we have on our hands to we took that time off to refocus and you know decided that this was something that was like worthwhile for sure it seemed at that time like it was creating culture yeah like that was when it started to feel like we're doing something now like people are actually like fighting to get in here or jumping over the walls and rolling down these hills because they didn't know that the other side was like an actual fucking hill and like you know it was really crazy (laughs) i mean one of the reasons that i don't think we would probably stay at that space was we outgrew it definitely the restrooms (laughs) lauren can you talk about was this when some of your heroes started to visit the club yeah definitely i think this was when i think the first like, we had, Metro Area was kind of, like, on the, during, like, the swan song years of Guadalinda. We started off at El Cid with, like, Runaway, which was Jacques Renault and Marcos Cabral. And, you know, then we went on to have people like Marshall Jefferson there and Nicky Ciano did El Cid. Simeon, Mobile Disco, I think, was there at some point. But I it was, like... Boys Noise was trying to get on, so... <laughs> Like Dita Von Tees would come and like hang out in the rafter area and stuff because it was like so many weird spaces there that you could get lost in. It was like, it was really crazy. It what was, was the capacity of the club? We don't really know because they only had capacity for dinner and they all of the parties that we would throw and they threw other parties after us too in that same space. Which I think probably led to them getting shut down. Well, I, <laughs> but there was never a, a hard number for any of it. And that's why we got away with so much. Yeah, and it was basically like they would have their... On the Friday night, which is when we do, would do our party, they would have two dinner shows, one at 6.30 and then one at like 8.30. And then right when the 8.30 dinner show was done, we would be like, all right, folks, turn on the lights, like turn off the music. And start then clearing all the plates. Start cle- like us. We would clear, clear the all tables. the plates, clear the tables, and then move the tables off of what would soon become the dance floor. Hurry the flamenco dancers out of there so we could get our backline in. Um, set up the stage. Yeah, like, set up the stage. Make the stage look awesome. You know, I that, mean, sometimes we would bring in half a car to yeah, like, throw we had, on. To, I think like, we the had stage <coughs> and like motorcycles and like. You know, weird hurricanes of trash for yeah. some reason. <laughs> we had a we had Motor City drum ensemble one time, and we were like really went with the Motor City theme. And we we had Greg went to the junkyard with like five hundred bucks, and then bought like the back of a Ford Explorer, and then we opened up the back window for the DJs to DJ through. <laughs> and there was like hubcaps everywhere on stage. Like that was like kind of like where we were coming from at I the time. I had my little sister's mini pink motorcycle on yeah. stage, was- and like. It was, it was just like, <laughs> it was funny. Part of what we wanted to do to differentiate ourselves from places where they would have like a DJ come in and then call it a club was that we wanted to go in and we wanted when you walked into a theme, a, vibe. Yeah, a theme or a vibe and we wanted it to be transformative when you walked in to be like, whoa, I wasn't expecting this. You know, 
we always had like a, a pretty lofty idea of what club clubbing could be. And it to us, if you were half-assing it, you weren't really getting the point. Like when we thought of clubbing, it was like the kind of the spark that created all these like cultural revolutions. So that's kind of what we were, where our head was at. And that's kind of like our optimism and what, what we worked so hard towards was recreating those, you know, things like the limelight or studio 54 or paradise garage yeah those are the things that like inspired us even though we were never there to go above and beyond and you know to kind of reach for this idea of clubbing that was you know kind of a mover of men if you will we always want to create the type of space that will give you memories for life you know it's not just like a night that you go to have a chill drink at or just another club night that you're like, forget. You're like, oh, whatever, I went and saw some DJ, whatever. It's the type of night that hopefully, you know, you wind up meeting the love of your life or meeting like the love of your next five minutes. Or, or figuring out your sexuality. Yeah, or figuring yourself out or figuring out what you want to do next in life or, you know, anything like that. Like, hopefully we're providing the type of space that you are going to go out and lose part of yourself and gain another part of yourself you know and one of the things that we haven't addressed is both of you refer to Rhonda in the third person mm-hmm. so that's sort of like the silent partner between you two like you said you were originally planning on using different women's names but Rhonda's obviously become it and you obviously both refer to her and think of her as a way to drive the parties is that correct yeah I think that she would if if we set out to kind of use her as a mouthpiece so that we kind of removed our personalities from the club and it gave voice to this collective kind of persona. She's like the sum of our two like personalities mixed with our like ideals of a like immortal clubbing woman. And it's it kind of gives us a platform by which we can be incredibly creative, you know, in terms of what we do. It's not us doing it, it's Rhonda doing it. So we kind of had that kabuki aspect through the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it was this character that we sort of created that's our ideal person for the club. And like something I don't think we touched on earlier was that at first when we started the club, we didn't even mention our own names, which was very different from clubs at the time because every, every club night or venue or whatever always usually at the time on every flyer on every like communique had like this person presents this type of thing or this person does this type of thing and this dj and this whatever we'd actually change all of our names every single time to some weird crazy like like screwed up version of the fictional name so that you never actually were able to keep track of whoever these people were because we didn't want it to be about us we wanted it to be about you we wanted it to be about Rhonda this character that nobody knew but everybody thought of it's like something to hide behind but also something to lift up and I mean obviously we're no longer hiding of course anything but um, that just had to come at some point because of the growth of company and Rhonda is still very much this person and this persona that's alive in a lot of people's minds I mean we still get the question who is she or we still get the story of oh I met her 
and like <laughs> and it's always very interesting to us and i mean i love all those things yeah and we're I like no she is stuff. you man like that's like, who you <laughs> <laughs> that's also why you'll never really see her on a flyer or on in person or anything like that you know we're never hiring somebody to be Rhonda, and in every visual representation of who she is we always like take away the face or hide the face or whatever but like she is so many people she's everybody and nobody all at the same time to us it's just a really interesting way that me and him have been able to combine our personalities because we're actually so different like half the time we hardly get along so like, like, like any good a collaborative team yeah. I mean, we definitely have like our strengths that lie in very different places so. so it's a combination of the both of us that make up this character and it's it's been a betterment for the both of us i think let's go back to el cid el cid at the time like i remember at some point you guys were doing crazy numbers there you found another place where you're able to bend the limits of what's legal to an extent like you yeah. have a thousand people showing up at this place that is maybe good for 250 yeah i think it was probably only good for about 300 yeah. and we we're fitting like nice like 1000 like in the door or something so like it was pretty packed and people were climbing on top of each other so even though it's cool for a lot of people to show up in the end like when we try to throw our ideal party I don't think anybody wants to be in a place that's, that's that crowded. And, you know, while it's cool for people to be clamoring at the door, yeah, I think that that's a fine line to walk until it becomes like a generator of bad will. So it was time to move. That plus the venue losing its cabaret license. <laughs> like, was like, definitely, like, it was definitely time to move. <laughs> so I think that that was another hiatus that we went on, right? We were supposed to go straight to Los Globos which was is now where we have had our flagship for a few years now, the, a club called Rhonda name, tagline, or whatever, which we obviously have multiple of now, which I don't think we've mentioned on this, but there are multiple entities of the party at this point. So it's not just a club called Rhonda, but there's also a Rendezvous, which is a bigger version of it. And normally one big room or sometimes three giant rooms. And there's Rondopolis, which is our New Year's Eve party, or Rondesia, which is like our pool party, or, um, you know, Queen of the Desert, which was something that we did at Grand Coachella each time in Palm Springs. Or There's just so many entities of like who Rhonda is and what she's doing at that time now that we have adapted to based on our surroundings and based on what's necessary for us to bring different realizations of the perfect party to very different people. So to give a little bit of context on what Gregory's talking about in terms of these different iterations of the party, after El Cid, a club called Ronda threw a lot of parties in a club called 333 Live, which is formerly owned by Prince. And yeah. used to be called Glam Slam. Since then, club called Ronda has gone from its rather scrappy roots to sort of take over the standard downtown, which is, I think, a 19-floor hotel yeah. on New Year's it's Eve. 13, floor, 13, yeah. floors, 13 floors. And as well as the standard West Hollywood, mm -hmm. the Roosevelt Hotel, which is another historic Hollywood hotel. The Mondrian, the Belasco Theater, the Globe Theater. She's been around. I think that... As well, well as New York, yeah. Miami, Chicago, San Francisco... Palm Springs. So the question that people are going to ask now is Toronto. What happened in there? You know, like you have Guadalinda, you have something that you and your friends create, 
You're not even trying to put yourself out there at all. And then you have El Cid where it's sort of grown beyond you. It's grown beyond the space. Mm -hmm. And then now, 2015, nine years later, you're coming to a place where the most established hotels, the most established clubs in the city, they're like asking you to work with them. And how did that happen? Every step that we've taken has been very like careful, even though it seems like now that you mentioned that, I think that it seems like very like a stark jump. But I think that everything that has happened has been so slow in terms of every kind of crossroads that we come to has been very measured. And we take a good long kind of look at what we're doing and what this might bring, because in the end, we're protective of like Rhonda's brand to a fault where we've turned down for all that shit that's happening. We've turned down a lot of stuff that doesn't quite fit. You know, the battle is to do, we're both very ambitious people and we're, we both have a lot of belief in the message that Rhonda can, can carry to a lot of people. So it's this kind of like mix of, you know, wanting to be the best person that Rhonda can be mixed with bringing the message to as many people as possible, mixed with wanting to deliver the club ideal that we want in this like world that's mired with mediocrity in the explosion of like half-assed dance music. So those three things have been pushing us to do bigger and better things. And it's totally like a fair kind of question to ask is like, you know, what happened to the punky roots? I mean, for everything that we do, we never like turn our back to that. You're always able to get into our party for five bucks if you want to get there at a certain time. And that's something that will never kind of go away. But we're also exploring different ways to deliver her message to different markets. And, you know, same way that Rhonda wears a lot of different outfits, we're able to kind of adapt to a lot of different situations. Some of them might be a little bit like posh, but we bring her kind of animalistic like dirty flirty kind of fun to those situations and we could either let it like continue where we were where it would it wouldn't just cease to grow it would cease to live you know in clubland if you're not moving you're dying so i think that that's part of the reason for our longevity is our ability to kind of reinvent her in a lot of different ways and to give you a very linear perspective on that we were meant to move to Los Globos. The same owners El Cid had bought Los Globos. It was a bigger venue. They were renovating it. We had actually two closing parties at El Cid. We had one where there was like a dinner party beforehand. My parents came. They danced on stage. My mother kicked off a bunch of people off the stage like for bothering her for dancing. And then like we had a second closing party because we're like, oh, wait oops, the new venue that we're moving to was not actually ready. And then it still wasn't ready for the third time. So what had happened was that, like, one of the owners knew the owner of this other space, which was 333 and Boylston, which was the space that he's talking about that Prince used to own called Glam Slam, which is a, a giant mega club. And we didn't really know if we could do that at the time, but we had no other choice than to move to some place that was willing to take us, that didn't have much going on, and that had the space, at least, that we thought that we might be able to throw all this excess from what wasn't fitting in at all, Sid. Yeah, I think we so, had, like, a, a talent booked. I forgot who it was, but we had 
party was on Friday. It was Tuesday, and we had nowhere to go. So that was like the situation. So it was a necessity, yeah. you know. I mean, and we moved to the space, and we didn't want it to be a club called Ronda because we didn't feel like that space necessarily was the same vibe like we had had at Guadalinda, like we had had at Al Cid, like we have at Los Globos, where it's like smaller rooms, dark corners, mirrors red tufted anything you know like where it just provided this certain type of vibe experience so we renamed it rendezvous and we had like a very long arduous like collaborative creative experience to even come up with all these concepts and that was sort of like going to be our big room situation where everybody met up all at once it was a rendezvous you know and so but, of course, we had to spell it with Rhonda, R-H-O-N-D-A, never lose the brand. It was trying. It was really trying because the space that we were going to, that we were meant to go to was not ready for a while. And then we got on a roll with, like, doing these bigger spaces. But it was harder for him to book, I know. And it was harder for us to fill the space because it was a 1,500-person space as opposed to, like, a 500-person space that we had overfilled by half, by double, I mean. It was more like, okay, we really need to work hard now to get this to a place that we can still keep this an alive, like, thriving vibe instead of just, like, resting on the fact that we had a small space, that we were a, a big fish in a smaller pond, to say, you know? that, And so... Even though we were still in the LA market, of course, we were going to a much bigger pond, like a much bigger space to fill with a ton of fucking fishes. It was a lot of work, and we had to like do real stage <laughs> designs and real, like, really think about multiple doors and think about like all these bars and think about everything like super logistically, which was difficult. But I think it really pushed us to become way more professional about what we were doing. And it also pushed a lot more people to know about us because it was this huge place that overlooked downtown and that like had all these crazy acts coming to and that still anything could happen. And we had, you know, people jumping off and onto things and dancing off of everything. So that was sort of an incubating time that we grew so much. And then by the time that we were able to move to the flagship that we are at now, Globos, that was packed and we were still able to do other spaces because people were still begging for that large room space that we didn't even think at first that we could do. So that's sort of what I think led to us doing multiple venues at the same time because we had already tried our hand at doing such large things and then had moved back down to a smaller space and realized we still needed to do the larger things. Yeah, that's a really clear explanation. Like, it was sort of this precarious move. Like, it could have gone either way. Like, yeah, yeah. it could have failed completely. I mean, nothing that and we've done. There was a done, few times that we thought it would. <laughs> nothing that we've done has been the product of, you know, strategic planning. Let's put it that way. It's always been like a, a series of crises that has, you know, put it, pushed us in a lot of cool directions. It's and sink I, or swim. Ultimately, you know? for us, failure has never been an option. So once we get, like, once you have to do something like that and you make it work, you see that you can make more things work. And and we were, at that time especially, willing to put anything and everything into it. So it's not like we were, like, coming home with, you know, buckets of money in our pockets or something. We were putting everything straight back into it constantly. 
So Lauren, what were some of the acts that you brought in to actually fill that venue? The idea behind Rendezvous was always to, whereas it's nice to be able to book to like one, two, two or three small rooms because in booking Rendezvous in a bigger venue, you're able to, I mean, you kind of come to the realization very quickly that there is not that many people who can carry a room of... 1500 to 2000 people like both in the ability of DJing you know it's not an easy thing to do but also in terms of filling that room with your name those are two things that are not like you found out pretty quickly that it's it's a different ball game so like the things that went off like crazy in there was like James Murphy we did DJ Harvey DJ Nature we did Crazy P um Optimo Optimo Kenny Dope and always tried to like match them with with kind of the more up and coming people the problem is that like a 1500 to 2000 person room is not a great place for an up and coming dude to play it's just you know it's a mismatch so it was it's definitely difficult to make that happen yeah I mean we had people like Basement Jacks yeah Basement Jacks so like yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about it from the sort of production end of it as well, because you had mentioned how at some of the initial parties you literally had your Japanese exchange student friend throwing confetti in front of a fan. So how how has that developed? That had to take on a whole new life as well. You know, I mean, it was like the type of thing where it wasn't just me, you know, building something by hand or with one person as a friend or something like that you know to having now i think a full team where i have an assistant or a couple and you know a team of people to set up and a team of people to tear down and it's an animal in of itself so normally with any of these spaces you don't have the luxury of time to set up like an entire thing because you're not renting the space for like a month or a week even. You're doing a one-night party, so you get to get in that morning and you get to be out the next day because they got other shit going on. So it's really hard when we do these spaces that are so large or that are multiple rooms within even just this large space because you're trying to make every bit of that space feel like Rhonda, feel like she's providing the space for you or that she's communicating to you or that it's something different from when you go to that space for the party that for the party the day before or the party the day after so it takes a lot of money sweat muscles people just to get it all in get it all set up get it and it takes a lot of time of planning ahead of time that went from us spending i don't even know like nothing to exorbitant amounts on like what we actually do for the party and I think that we're probably one of the only sort of like club entities that's not like a festival necessarily that spends quite so much on returning your investment of when you're coming to the party basically so that's the way that we look at it is if we provide the right amount of effort that we're setting up for you that you'll return it in how hard you party or how much you enjoy it or whatever. So, and I think that that's worked pretty well for us so far where a lot of the energy that we put in is returned to us. As far as physically, I think that that's gone from like us making shit 
out of nothing. Yeah, out, <laughs> to, of, fo- out of foam and paper. Yeah, to... to actually, you know, hiring custom builds and like um, fabrication and all that kind of stuff that takes yeah, us to the next level. And buying stuff to like, you know, come from other countries and fixing it into ways that fit your environment. So, yeah, I mean, it, th- that whole part of the game has completely changed for us. Yeah. <laughs> And it's a lot of times hard to keep up because it's like, how do you continually top yourself, you know, when you're already forcing out so much out of so little? So as you start to inhabit these larger spaces, bring in bigger DJs, you know, is Rhonda still debauched? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's always there's always going to be a, a revelry that's like, if there wasn't, then we wouldn't do it. Yeah, I so. think that once we have lost the soul of what we're trying to do, which is trying to, you know, be this, like, launch pad for self-exploration and, and self-expression, once we're not able to do that in a very, like, aggressively, like, forward way, and we have to kind of measure what we're doing, that's when we'll we'll stop. But I think that coming from who both me and Greg are, like there's no way in hell that's going to happen in a very long time. Like I'm sure everybody's asking us to to slow it down, but we're not, we're not going to. We've run into our own problems with how that meets each venue's expectations too, from, you know, having issues with security, not being fully briefed on like what might go down and how to handle it to, the normal crowd at a specific venue that we're coming in and taking over not being prepared for what they're about to get into. So there's obviously hurdles at each space and each time that we grow and and inhabit a new incarnation of Rhonda. But that's like was something that's always like of the utmost importance to us. So that people can feel free enough to live out their life however the hell they want to in that space, in that amount of time that we're providing. So whether that be that you decide you want to play with gender or play with sexuality or play with yourself, like, self-expression or dance mu- music, you know, for the time that you're not normally doing that or just showboating, it is anything, you know, however you want to live out your, your time at Rhonda, we want to provide a safe space for that. So... That is the key to continuing to doing parties. And I think that's also why people at this point have really like taken notice and started to reach out to us. You know, like there's a lot of different spaces and people that have have offered us a lot of different things at this point to bring that type of experience to them. Our initial mission statement was house, disco and polysexual hard partying. Yeah. And then it's it's grown to be, like, I think we touched on this earlier, platform for self-expression. I think that we also touched on dance music being pretty far from its roots in terms of its adventurousness and its authenticity. We're also in this, like, gender playground that's happening right now, trying to, you know, keep that in the conversation within dance music because a lot of times the mainstreaming of dance music excludes that from the conversation so so i think at this point one of our main taglines is fearless self-expression and pleasure forever